Welcome back to the Content Lab podcast, where we pull back the curtain on all things content marketing. I am co-host John Becker, Editorial Content Manager at Impact, and with me is Liz Moorhead. Hi. Hi. Hi, Liz. How are you? Oh, you know, just super. Uh, as we were just talking about, like, this is one of those days where I feel like I'm finally checking off things on my list that have been lingering for in some cases a few weeks, but let's just not focus too hard on that, um, which feels good, but there's a level of mental exhaustion that is leading me to believe no one should ask me to do anything math related today. Like, I don't feel like <laughs> math, taxes, any sort of uh, substantive planning beyond maybe an hour from now should, should occur, really. That's, that's where I'm at. How are you? What's up? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty relatable. It's a strange world we live in, and it does feel good to cross things off our list, but it feels like the list keeps getting longer at the same time. Yeah, 100%. But it is a new day, and it's actually sunny outside. This is crazy. I, I know. It, it's not, at least where I am, it's not very warm, but it's very pretty. There are lilacs blooming, and it's sunny, and green and even though it doesn't feel necessarily completely like spring it keeps getting prettier outside so things are good yeah are you getting outside i'm getting outside a little bit that's the funny thing about where i am right now mentally i feel like a lot more optimistic i feel excited about what's going on i feel good but my I don't know what's up. Like my sleeping is all out of whack. My routines are all out of whack. I had a, I had a priority for this past period where I was like, I'm going to, you know, hike or run X number of miles, maybe got through 50, 60% of it. Uh, so that's the only thing I'm really struggling with right now is that my mindset feels pretty positive, but I also just feel like a hamster wandering around a tiny little cage all day. Like, I, I don't know if you feel that way, but there's just like routine fatigue for me right now. I am amazed that we are halfway through May. It feels as though in some ways that we've been in quarantine forever. And in some ways, what happened to April? I have no idea. There was no April. Do you remember when January literally felt like 18 years? <laughs> oh, those small problems we had back then. I know. Welcome to January 37th of the another ending month. And now it's just you blink. I'm afraid I'm going to take a nap, wake up, and it's October. And I won't know what will have happened. Although you do love the fall. Yes. I do love the fall. Maybe we could have like a summer hibernation as opposed to winter. As a, as a nap enthusiast, I consider it an art form. Uh, I'm down for that. But before we get like too carried away with me talking about naps, which I could totally talk about, I think probably for an hour, maybe more. What are we talking about today? Well, I'm glad you're in the mental headspace that you're in because it's time for the hot seat, Liz. <gasps> sizzle, sizzle. Oh, I regret that immediately. I'm sorry. That was awful. <laughs> Leave it in. Everybody should know my shame, but that was pretty awful. <laughs> so today, we talk a lot of this podcast um, about the things that people think of most often when they think of content. Yeah. Blog posts, pillar pages, that sort of thing. But the reality is that content writers and content managers often have their hands on any copy, any copy that goes on their company's website, or maybe even any communication the company is putting out. And that can be as big as, Liz, you know, the manuscript for a book, 
or it can be as small as subject lines of emails, those tiny little things where we might have to tweak and improve on um, getting a message exactly right. So today we are going to talk, or I'm going to talk to you and ask you, Liz, about writing content for landing pages. Ooh, landing pages are a tricky little thing too because you have to do so much punchy, because you're not creating content, you're copywriting, which there is a subtle difference between the two. When you're creating content, that's where you can be the, not necessarily meandering, that can have a negative connotation, but you can be the pontificating thought leader. You can expand upon big ideas, put forward thought-provoking questions. Whereas at the landing page, you are creating copy that is designed to communicate very quickly, like why someone should, you know, give their information to you in exchange for a piece of content. That's essentially, you're, you're trying to convince someone it's persuasive writing on crack, essentially. And you have very little, you know, blank space to work with. Like you said, you don't want to clutter up something with too much text. And so you have to be very, as you said, pithy. It's like writing a sonnet in a way. It's, uh, it's, it's an exercise in, in precision and economy. So let's start and back up. Hold on. They are now blowing all outside my window. I don't know how hard, how loud can you hear that? No, I, I hear it, but not bad. Okay, great. I just wanted to check with you first before we went like full bore into the topic. They're about to pass by, but it was really loud right here for a second. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. So first off, let's back up. And when we say landing page, what do we mean? So a landing page uh, at its core from a structure perspective, yes. So the goal is you usually have a piece of content. Maybe it's a pillar that is ungated, but there's a form on it so somebody can download a PDF. Maybe it's the more old school, traditional white paper version where, again, there is a form on the page. Someone gives you their personal information in order to gain access to that piece of content. From a structure perspective, you're going to find a couple of things there. You're going to have a headline. You're going to have some convincing text there that's just going to tell everybody, gosh darn it, you need to have this. And here's why. It's just so awesome. Oh my God, give me your email address, please. Please just give it to me. Um, one of the other things that we recommend on a landing page, which I don't see very often as the best practice that is followed, but it 100% should be. So we don't talk a lot about video on this podcast, but that doesn't change the fact that A, video is one of the most persuasive and trust-building mediums of content out there that exists today. And B, there are seven types of videos called this, that we call the selling seven, and we can put a link to this in the show notes. And the selling seven are essentially the digital sales and marketing videos that are proven to get the best results. And one of those is a landing page video. We've seen that landing pages that have a video on there that is from a human talking about what it is that they found on this page, why it's important, why they need it, what the value is. And then also, this is something that people often forget, what's going to happen once you give somebody your information? Like, we're strangers on the internet. You don't know who I am. What's going to happen when you give me your email address? Are we going to spam you? Are you going to get enrolled in a newsletter? Like, what's going to happen? So that's the other key component there is that there is the textual piece of it, there's the form, and there's the video, and then the button you can smash that says, yes, give it to me. That's what I want. So 
it's interesting. I would agree with you that we are more likely to trust that sort of declaration of uh, being genuine and being trustworthy in a video than we are in text. Mm-hmm. But I, whenever I, th- I feel like there's a, a text where you have to check something, I, I think of like a, a you know software user agreement that no one actually reads or something like that. And a video is personal and um, there, there's a there's a humanity to it that makes it connection connect. there's one of my favorite web comics it's by a, an artist called system 32 and it's this little computer that says here are terms and service or terms of services and our service agreement and like within 10 seconds the guy's like clicked i agree and then the computer in the last frame goes i know you're lying but okay <laughs> it just makes me laugh every time because yeah that's the stuff everybody glazes over it's like this is in the way of the thing that i want yeah yep yeah so how do people get to landing pages? Landing pages are typically found. So if we're talking about the content marketing and generally how it's supposed to work or inbound marketing, for example, the most traditional pathway people get to something is there is a blog article. Let's say, for example, we have an article that is about, I don't know, how to build a a world-class virtual events team, right? And then you'll have different links there And it may then take you to a CTA at the bottom for an agency service that we have that says, learn more about our virtual event service. And there may be a form on there to contact someone. So that is a bottom of the funnel type of landing page where traditionally somebody's not getting something in return other than a follow-up call or the ability to schedule a meeting. Um, That's when they're really motivated. Now, if you're talking about something like what we call top of the funnel or middle of the funnel, where the offers being provided are more educational in nature. For example, an ultimate guide to website redesign for businesses. If you were to go to the how much does a website design or redesign cost in 2020 article, you'd have this big long article that tells you all of the different variables that go into pricing out a website project. And then you'd find in-text CTAs, meaning hyperlinked text and callouts, to the ultimate guide to website redesign for businesses and also a CTA visual at the bottom. It's like a big pretty button that tells you what the thing is and that will kick you out again to the landing page. In that case, it's a pillar that can be downloaded. So usually that's how people are coming across it and those offers that the landing pages are associated with should be highly targeted to the content. Like people should want to, that should be like the next logical step. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I've understood this. Do you want to learn more? Yes, go here. Or for another great example would be, we want to get more tactical with the type of offer being given. We have an article that is all about how to interview and hire the right in-house videographer for your company. And connected to that article, so it goes through interview questions, it goes through like traits you should be looking for and so on and so forth. And in text and at the bottom is, oh, and here's the videographer job description template which totally makes sense because if you have someone who's learning how to hire a videographer, they have all the interview questions. They're likely going to need a job description. That's just ready to go for them to put up unless they already have one. So that's where you're running into it. In other cases, some people might find it organically. Like let's say you have a a content calendar template. Um, If you optimize it correctly and it's able to somehow get into that top 10 space, somebody might just come across the landing page because you've optimized it properly for a particular search term. 
And that's so tricky because in one case, we know exactly the path that someone is following. They've just read this article that we've produced and we are leading them to the next step in a process that we've pretty clearly anticipated, if not defined. And in the other example, we're not. They're coming from straight from an organic search into the same spot, which I think is always something that really interests me in digital marketing, that you know, we build these websites and these, these sitemaps um, you know, thinking that people might follow one path, which they might, but other times they might come in a totally different way. And I, I always remind myself as an editor that any page that I'm editing, any article that we're publishing could be the first page of impacts that anyone ever sees or that someone ever sees. While in my mind, I think of all the other pieces we put out on this topic or on pillars that we've written or on news that we've done about it or podcasts, they might have seen all of those, but they might not have. And you have to kind of be prepared for both, which I think would make the writing of these landing pages sort of tricky. Yeah, it is tricky. I mean, I've created some landing pages in some cases. Like, for example, I'll always create a landing page for someone to go download a toolkit or something or some sort of additional piece of content whenever I do a speaking engagement. But I also have to be prepared for the eventuality that, A, I might reuse that landing page for another purpose, or B, somebody might come across it organically. And a perfect example of that is the content style guide toolkit I made a couple of years ago. People come across that organically, but people were also coming across it from either the pillar because the toolkit was associated with the how to create a content style guide pillar that was an additional set of resources and there was the talk. So at the beginning, I do just, I break the fourth wall and I say, hey, you've come to this place either one of three ways. <laughs> if this is you, you are still in the right place. And so it, it's, it's a nice way to just say like, okay, you got here, let's make sure you are the right person in the right place, which I think is always very critically important to do right off the bat. You know, one of the things that people will quickly skim for on a landing page of any kind immediately is they are trying to answer, is this relevant to me? And that is broken out into two categories. Does this solve the specific problem I am trying to solve? And is this solution designed for someone in my role, in my circumstances, the who is it for me? Mm. And you really need to surface that very quickly because otherwise it's going to get very confusing. Hmm. So let's talk about how you, how you actually write these. What's your advice for someone writing a landing page, building a landing page? I think it's very similar to the strategy that we often, that we often coach our clients. We have a website copywriting clients as well that we coach to really make powerful content on your website that people will love. Um, and that's don't write about yourself, write about the people first. Like your audience should be the hero of this particular piece of content, right? And you should focus very, very, very deeply on the problem they're experiencing. I think there's this urge in copywriting, especially conversion style copywriting, to immediately show up to somebody and be like, hi, my name's Liz. These are the solutions I have. Look at how great I am. Look at how great this is. This piece of content is awesome. And you don't spend any time going, hey, nice to meet you. Let me pretend to be a mind reader and articulate all of the problems you have in your head right now that are keeping you up at night. And really, really drilling into it from the perspective of, let me tell you what the problem is first. Let me paint the picture very briefly of 
why it is that you're feeling that way, what's brought you to that moment, and then how we're going to help you with this piece of content. So usually the headline itself will say something like videographer job description template. And then you'll dive into, you know you need a videographer, but you've never hired one before. You've never hired one before. You're not a video expert. You don't even know what's supposed to be in the job description. Great news. So we have video experts. And that's what this template is. It's ready to use. You like It's for dummies. It's for non-video people. You can immediately publish this into the universe and have people come to you. So that way we really start with their problem, which helps them understand who it's for and how it will help them. Like people often say like, well, we got to show the value really quickly, but yes. Okay. The value will happen as an outcome. But if you focus instead like a laser on what is the specific problem we're solving, say it out loud, detail it. Okay. How are we going to solve it better than anybody else? Write that out the value shows itself. The value is the outcome. It's not the goal. I love that. That's fantastic. Because I, th I think there's such a natural reaction or a natural inclination to want to say, well, we've hired thousands of video, you know, something like to start with we, to start with me or I or my own expertise and to start with you. That's such a, such a radically simple and, and important way of reorienting the way we think about the process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's how I also focus on article writing too. Um, if you're not very quickly setting the table of what problem you're going to solve, whether it's by virtue of telling an, your own personal story about a time you've been in a particular circumstance or literally pointing the finger with your words through the screen saying, you, you are here. This is how you're feeling. Oh my gosh. How'd you get here? Everything's on fire. Oh my God. Before you sweep in with the, okay, we can work this out. This is how you figure it out. Everything's going to be fine. Take this virtual piece of paper. It's okay. You know, like you, people want to give the solution to the problem before it even happens. And it's like, that would be like going to the doctor and I, as the patient, all I know is like my ankle hurts. And the doctor comes back to me and says, well, this particular bone, the fee boo 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 bone, is what is broken here. And like, I have no idea what you're saying and I don't care. I just know my ankle hurts. It's like, I don't understand. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I saw this, this post recently. I think it was a tweet. It was something about, uh, you know, me saying, I want to know how to, you know, roast beets and a food, a food blogger saying, want to learn how to roast beets? And I say, yes, how do you roast beets? And then the food blogger says, I was raised at a small farm in Illinois, you know, and like they, they go into this long story. I don't know if you've ever experienced this way before they get to the recipe. Like you just want the recipe. Oh and my God. want to tell you like some long, long story. Like it, it's so, when you think about it in those, from that perspective, it's like this re really selfish act where you're like taking my time rather than giving me the information. I'll, I'll trust your site and I'll come back to it if I like the recipe and it, it helps me solve my problem. But I don't want to have to wade through all the stuff about you when you are showing me that you don't have my problem at your, the heart of your post. Dan Baum in one of our article, in an article that he wrote about Google ads, he did a big review post I'll actually put this in the show notes because it's very funny. He references that exactly. And he's like, I don't care 
have like generations of your family never wrote down recipes and they've only been passed down through interpretive dance and oral tradition. <laughs> I just want the freaking meatballs recipe. And it's so true. It's so self-serving. We spend so much time writing copy, whether that's on websites or landing pages or in our articles in a way that serves our masters, serves ourselves, makes us feel good, makes us feel like we're checking off boxes. But if we're not stopping and saying, okay, who is it that I'm speaking to? What is their exact problem in their words? And if they were sitting in front of me right now saying, Liz, I'm going to take you by the shoulders. And in my words, this is exactly what I need you to give me. Like your people, if you listen to them, like the little voices in your head that probably make it seem like I need to go see a doctor. Like if you, they will tell you what they want from you. They will tell you what they need to hear. You just need to listen. You need to sit down and think and define that. And if you don't start from that posture, if you don't start from that position, all you're going to do is create something that's salesy and, and it's going to feel inauthentic. It's not going to feel helpful. It's not going to capture that like dream of value that we're all searching for, you know? Well, I think there's also, there's like a stance of humility that has to come with that, that you have to sort of, I don't know, get rid of your ego a little bit and obsess about what someone else is is needing, the answer that they need, rather than just, you know, us sort of proving how smart we are. Stop being so selfish. Start obsessing about what your what your audience wants. Like it, life gets so much easier that way. So Liz, back to landing pages, which we've been circling around. Uh, in terms of language, what is most important when you're trying to get someone to take a desired action? Precise language. Um, this is where a lot of fluff needs to get left, left on the cutting room floor. Have an adjective, but have powerful adjectives. Watch your adverbs. Those can quickly run amok in all of your copy. You need, like, every single word has to have a purpose. Every single statement needs to be powerful. It needs to paint a picture. And it, most importantly, needs to be active and action-oriented. You want someone to immediately understand what the thing is, what they're supposed to do with it, and what they're going to get out of it. And that only happens when you get rid of, like, wishy-washy content crutches, like, you should consider perhaps maybe blah, blah, like, like all of that stuff that we fall into because we're afraid we don't want to sound like bossy a-holes. Like we don't want to be too pushy. This is the place where you don't want to be pushy, but you want to be assertive. You want to be declarative. You want to stand behind the value of what it is that you're providing, but you want to be very specific with your language. So usually what I do when I write a piece of landing page copy is I go back, I look at it and go, how many of these words can I get rid of? Like, are you being redundant anywhere? Are you saying something in one place, but then for some reason, just for funsies, you decided to restate the same idea, but just with different words. Like that all needs to go. You have a very limited amount of real estate. You are dealing mostly with skimmers. So you've got to make sure that you have really clean copy. You also want to take advantage of subheadings. Don't just have the name of the offer in a, or name of the offer in a heading. Have things that carry people through it, like three solid subheadings, which is, you know, here's a subheading that like teases what your problem is. And you're like, oh yeah, that is me. A little bit of text about what the problem is. 
So how do you fix it? Another heading. Well, this is how you fix it. Okay, here's what you're going to get. And these are all the little things that you get, little bullet points. You know, like just really carry people through that narrative quickly and then kick them out to that button. And the button itself, this is one of my favorite things. Usually people leave the button copy alone. It stays as the dreaded submit. Ugh, that's so boring. But I saw this really fascinating talk last year at Marketing B2B or the B2B Marketing Profs Forum, um, and it was in D.C. this year. And one of the things they found is that if you made buttons written in the first-person narrative, like it's the person who's clicking the button, like, I'm ready to download this. I want that white paper. Give me that template now. They saw increases in conversions. So don't leave that alone. Don't be afraid to have a button that's a little longer. If anything, it'll just get noticed more, especially if it's in the warmer color scheme, like a red and orange, as opposed to blue or green, which doesn't really promote as much action. Um, that will really drive people to be more likely to click it because it's like, yes, I do want it. You want to create a statement where somebody's like, yeah, I agree with that statement. Why wouldn't I click it? It feels like I'm saying that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's great because that actually leads into the last thing that I wanted to ask you, which is normally when we do our work, when we write, we have only so many tools at our disposal, our words, but it's normally black and white. With the landing page, you have design, you have color, you have uh, more options to, to play with, a sort of bigger sandbox to play with. So when you build a landing page, are you typically working with a designer or do you build, bring a designer in to look at something? Like you talked about warm colors and cool colors. Beyond the words, what do you recommend in terms of those other design elements that, that can make something what it is? You know, I would say keep it simple. So we don't build a landing page from the ground up every single time. That would just be laborious. It would not be a scalable, repeatable process. That would mean there would have to be some sort of committee formed every time we wanted to create an offer, which is just not sustainable. So what we typically do, and I've noticed probably every, I don't know, maybe it's every six to 12 months, sometimes 12 to 18, depending on what the type of landing page is, you'll see iterations appear. So we'll have, this is the general standard template for a landing page for a content offer. And then it may get updated again to be more in line with modern best practices, make it look a little sleeker, a little sexier from a design perspective. And then also, you know, just any aesthetics that we may have changed to our branding or just our overall design aesthetic over time. So those are the types of things that evolve. But generally speaking, it's really simple. You know, there's, there's a statement, like there's the, there's the title area, there's a little bit of subtext, there's the section where you really like, okay, I'm here to make the pitch. This is the problem you've got. This is how you generally solve it. This is how this thing is going to help you do it. And then you have your form. So I don't really, as a content marketer, have to do a ton of the heavy lifting. But sometimes I will say things like, before we started putting landing page videos on there, which was a really good anchor visual, we would sometimes put thumbnails or screenshots or show the thing that people are getting, which is really helpful. Um, and in some cases that, that is still intact, like on our job description offer, that's there. Um, YouTube thumbnail templates, that's still there too. Um, so I think it really depends on how fancy you're getting with your landing pages. But my recommendation is to come up with a set of best practices that you stick by from a design perspective. Like 
okay, if, if warmer colors perform better on a button, there's no reason to change the color of the button every time, make it orange, make it red, make it whatever the thing it is that it needs to be at a template level. So all you're doing is putting in the copy, putting in the video, setting up the thank you page, things like that. The other thing I will say about landing pages that people forget is people really focus on the landing page experience, which is the convince and convert point right? Like I'm convincing you so you'll convert on this form. And then what they do is they completely overlook what the thank you experience looks like. Now in HubSpot, what you have two options. You can either set it up so that there's just a little inline thank you message that pops up and nothing else happens afterward, but I don't recommend doing that. I highly recommend on that thank you page, which usually has a link to the download, you know, the video that people want to watch. Add related content, make your website stickier, give them something else to do and where to go so their journey with you doesn't necessarily have to end. So in some cases we'll say, you know, like maybe we are pro promoting Impact Elite, which is our exclusive Facebook group for digital marketers. You know, we might have that there. We might have some of our top related content offers. Like let's say it's something about, let's say you just downloaded a big guide about website redesign. Maybe there are a couple checklists you might want to take a look at too, or maybe not other stuff to download. It's here are articles you should be looking at. You know, there are a lot of little ways to make sure that that experience beyond the page itself is as sticky and as memorable as possible. Like another option too, is that most landing pages or most landing page builders um, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, and I will say HubSpot, I know for sure does this, you have an automated follow-up option. Have an automated email go out. Have it be from a human being, not a do not reply or a hello at. Have it be from like, for example, whenever I set up a pillar landing page for myself that I've written, and then you click to download the PDF of my thing, you then get an email from me, the author, that's written personally like, hey, I'm so glad you liked this. So here's the link. Here's some other related articles. And by the way, I'm always constantly updating this piece of content because I wrote it and I always want it to be amazing. So reply directly to this email if you ever have any questions or things or suggestions. So there's that way to make it stickier and more holistic. It's, I think the fallacy, the logical fallacy that people fall into with landing pages is that they get so stuck on copywriting of the page itself that they forget everything else around it that creates the whole experience. Let's learn something. Awesome. So this is related to what I was talking about in terms of your question, right? What is great landing page copy look like? And one of the things I said in the keywords was active. One of the most common problems or mistakes that I know you and I see pretty much every single day that we are editing content from our peers to go on the impact blog is that people tend to lapse into what is called passive writing or passive voice when active voice is preferred. Now, before I start explaining the merits or why these things exist, I want to give an example because one of the things that's hysterical is that often so many of us are like, well, active voice is the thing you should be doing. And then when you try to come up with a good example for what is active voice versus passive voice, people start scrambling. So a good example of a passive voice sentence would be, 
this sentence is written in passive voice. Wherein the sentence is the noun doing the verbing. Sentences can't do anything. They can't verb. They are inanimate objects. They are not sentient. They have no artificial intelligence. They have no capacity to make decisions or do anything. The correct way to put it would be, I am writing this sentence in which I, the human, with thoughts, feelings, opinions, challenges, goals, dreams, a Snuggie tucked somewhere in my closet, I can do something because I am a person who can do a thing. Now, one of the reasons I've found that people tend to lapse very quickly into passive language is that, especially for younger people, passive language can sometimes have this strange veneer of sounding more professional, even though it is passive. It sounds more like you're suggesting something as opposed to being, you know, too pushy or bossy bossy. And it can feel a little bit, I think, uncomfortable at first for people who are not really feeling maybe as authoritative or settled in what their own voice sounds like in writing to lapse into passive voice, but it kills your writing. Passive voice, what you do not realize is that when people read a sentence, there is a split second where they have to invert the sentence in their brain to understand what it is that you're saying. So you're putting it in passive voice and I'm trying to figure out what the active version is. It's subconscious. It is, a, it is an infinitesimal amount of a second, but it's a critical one because if you have passive sentence after passive sentence after passive sentence, it's going to turn people off. They're going to start glazing over and those big ideas that you want to stick will not be there. Another good example is that there's an article that was written by Brian Casey, who's one of our impact uh, content marketing trainers. And he had this really powerful statement at the end of an article that was all about putting the onus of responsibility back on the reader. So essentially he was talking to clients or prospective clients and saying, well, okay, so you want to have a great healthy relationship with your content marketing consultant, then you need to take responsibility for it. And the way his draft originally ended it or the way he originally ended his draft, which is hilarious. That was a passive sentence, but okay. I, see the irony. I get it. Grammar Jesus. I'm there. Um, he, he at first ended it as frustrating conversations will occur and that's okay. <laughs> and I get it because when you're sitting down to write that sentence, you, you're, there's going to be the immediate hedge of like, well, I don't want to tell them that they're going to have to have awkward conversations. And instead what we ended up landing on, which is the more powerful is you're going to have frustrating conversations sometimes with your consultant, but that's part of the process. That's okay. And that's where those like power moments, those calls to action, those things really land when you move it into active voice. I can do something, you can do something, we can do something together. The guys outside who keep yelling at their dog, they can do something different too. But sentences can't do anything, frustrations can't do anything. Conversations, yes, can occur, but God, why? They can't do anything, they are not things with thoughts, and that is the end of my learning corner. I'm sorry, I just had so many feelings about that. Do you feel better? It seems I, like you, you got a lot off. I would, yeah, toward the end, I was definitely gesturing like I had some sort of audience or I was swimming through some sort of grammar ocean, but that's, that's where I'm at today, emotionally. What are you reading, John? Oh, so first, in, in, uh, I always think of the best examples of passive voice as, as like 
think of some like sort of wormy political figure who doesn't want to take any responsibility and is going to say something like mistakes have been made that have allowed this to occur. You know, like they don't want to say that we made mistakes or my, you know, I don't know. There are cabinet or yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Yes. Good to, uh, good to be aware of always. So what I was reading and I wanted to share, we'll put this in the show notes, was this article on adage um, that was all about how in the COVID era, brands are starting to market face masks that have, you know, the masks that we're all supposed to wear when we go to the store or when we're out and about. Um, And they're starting to market masks that have, you know, sports logos on there or superheroes or those sorts of things, even some like high fashion ones. And I found myself really feeling ambivalent about this and seeing it in a few different ways that in some ways it it seems kind of, I don't know, like profiteering off of this. Do we really need to sell more New York Giants face masks just to kind of get the <laughs> brand out there. That feels like a little bit dirty. But then I read that most companies are giving all or some of their profits to COVID-19 assistance. So that made me feel better. And then I just thought that it was, it's pretty sharp. And if you destigmatize the safety equipment, more people will wear it. And maybe it's a part of expressing yourself personally. And it's great that maybe you'll save lives because if people like their masks, they're more likely to wear their masks, et cetera. But ultimately I think what I settled on about this piece was just that, that amazing knowledge that sometimes there are entire industries that might be huge that don't exist at your present moment. And and three months ago, no one was talking about making branded face masks, but how big will this industry be this year? And, and it's a, an amazing reminder that, as much as we think that everything has been done or everything has been tried or anything like that, as the world changes, and granted this is a a tragedy and I don't wanna suggest that we want more of those or anything like that, but but any big event could happen and an an entire new industry can spring up and and the companies that are, are nimble and willing to adapt and willing to be creative are suddenly finding opportunity where where it didn't exist before. So an interesting piece that made me, uh, <laughs> as I said, take a whole roller coaster ride of emotions and, and um, sort of intellectual responses to it. So we'll li- link that too, and um, you guys can read it. Yeah, it's so funny. I, I, I think you also brought up something that I, I'm guilty of all the time, which is when I see something, I get very judgy, judgy. I'm like, well, that's not okay. I can't believe they did this. What monsters, what capitalist all like terrible people capitalizing on a tragedy. And then you did, you go, Oh, so that's a good thing. And I'm the judgy judge. And <laughs> someone's just trying to do something nice. Sorry, New York giants. <laughs> I think there's also the, um, Emerson said something, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, um, something like in every great work of genius, we see our own rejected thoughts come back to us with um, alien registry. It's something like that, that we, um, whenever we see like a really good idea, it's like, yeah, I 
thought, I kind of thought of that, or I should have thought of that, or Mm -hmm. I maybe had some kind. So I think there is sometimes that, that notion too, that we hear something and we're like, yeah, okay. I'm glad Mm -hmm. someone did that. I probably, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I always need, I need to check that reflex at the door sometimes. I'm so (laughs) quick to just be a stinky little know-it-all, but I guess that's the only child in me. Oh, well. Anyway, what another great episode. John, I hope you have a lovely afternoon. You too, Liz. I think you and I have some editing to get back to. And for everybody else, we'll talk to you next episode. Bye-bye. Bye.